salvation. Well, good morning, church. Uh, we are going to be continuing our series in 2 Corinthians this morning, and so you can go ahead and start flipping to chapter 6 for that. Uh, hopefully you grabbed an outline on the way in, or if not, we'll grab one next week. Um, I, as we flow through uh, this passage, we're going to be looking at five aspects of the ministry of reconciliation. And I want to tell you something while you're you know, flipping to, to that passage in your Bibles. Um, this is one of those sections in 2 Corinthians, and you see it elsewhere in Scripture as well, where there's more of a description happening. Paul is describing things about himself and his ministry to explain it to the church in Corinth. And so it's not necessarily a prescription for what we are supposed to do. We're not supposed to read that he was beaten and go seek to be beaten, per se. And yet, at the same time, we can look at his description of his ministry and see it as a model that we can pattern ourselves after or learn from. So we're gonna pull out five aspects of this model. And it's not, I mean, doing things like that, I mean, that's something that's pretty common to us. You know, you've got, um, you've got kids all over the country that, that wanna be basketball players or, or trying to become like Steph Curry and learn how to, uh, how to shoot like him. And I'm sure in your lives, there's been people that you've looked up to and, and modeled things after based on areas that interest you. And so we're gonna do the same thing here with Paul. Look at how he describes how he went about this ministry, which by the way, we're in, and we'll talk about that in a second. But learn from him, and maybe we can pattern our lives better in a way to bring God glory through him, all right? So um, five aspects, like I said, and the first one, we're gonna bridge back a little bit into the previous chapter. And so I know we've been all over the place over the summer. I don't, not, don't wanna assume that you've been keeping up and, uh, and know what chapter five was all about. And so look back to verse 18, and we'll read through the very first part of um, verse one of chapter six. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the whole world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, working together with him. So the point of, of today's passage that we're about to bridge into is not to define the reconciliation, not to, um, to, to explain necessarily the components of how we are reconciled. That's what was covered in previous weeks. What we need to understand today is the fact that this is our ministry of reconciliation. The first point on your outline is it's the essence of this ministry. And the essence is that we are called to work with God in the ministry of reconciliation. It's the core of what's going on here. We have been included in this ministry of reconciliation. We have given, been given the message of reconciliation. We have been made ambassadors for Christ, walking through this world. And let this not be something that we simply just mention and understand conceptually and then just walk away from. Think about what that means. We have been enlisted into the family of God for a purpose to enter into this ministry of reconciliation. 
We've been called into this ministry because he wanted it that way. He doesn't need us to tell the truth to anybody. He wants us to tell the truth to everybody. And this is true of every single believer. If you're in this place today and you are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, you consider yourself a Christian and you are one, you are a part of this ministry. It's not just for, for Paul and for, for missionaries and for preachers to do it. No, this is our ministry of reconciliation and we are all equal members of it, though we may have different skill sets and talents and different things that we do from week to week. We are all members of this ministry. That's how God chose to make it happen. The second aspect is the urgency. The urgency, we see the second half of verse one and verse two. It says, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So before we um, explain the the urgency aspect entirely, there's a question that I'm sure is in your minds right now. That it would be in the minds of, I think, anybody who would read the passage we have today from verse one to verse 13. How in the world can someone receive the grace of God in vain? It's a very strange concept at first to us reading, especially with how we tend to use the phrase in vain today. It makes us think that the grace of God was not effective that the grace of God either needed help or it failed and God started a work but then, but then stopped it somehow. It seems like somehow this grace is lacking. And yet there's two ways to interpret this that, that make all the sense in the world. And I put those two words on your outline, salvation and sanctification. That we could interpret this in terms of him talking about salvation. Now, how can you receive the grace of God in vain with regards to salvation? Well, we would put it in different words today. We usually talk about a head knowledge that it does not result in true saving faith. A mental understanding of the concept. Anybody can understand the concept and the components of what it means to come to faith in Jesus Christ and become a Christian. I mean, from childhood on up. And yet, just understanding that and thinking that and saying, yeah, that, that, what, I guess that makes sense, that is not the same as placing your trust in Jesus Christ. That is not the same as a salvific faith that results in life change. And there are those in this Corinthian church who would fall under that category. The second one, the second word is sanctification. Now, the sanctification means the, the, the rest of our lives after salvation on earth, right? The, this process of living for Christ and being molded by God through the work of the Holy Spirit. There was an active battle going on in this church that Paul has addressed on numerous occasions in this letter and will continue to. There are false teachers in this church teaching a legalistic faith that is not the, the true faith or at the very best, just changing the way people are living after coming to faith in Christ. And so you could interpret this as receiving the grace of God in vain in a way that means that you started with Jesus. You started with grace, but you've been pulled astray into living a different way. And in effect, you are not living out the fullness of this gospel and the power of that is not being laid out in your life. It would be similar to what Paul says in Galatians chapter three. 
O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? So there's two possible interpretations there. He could mean both as he's, as he's writing this, but I think he definitely means the second one about sanctification based on the context of what was happening in the church in Corinth. But the urgency is his main point here. He quotes from Isaiah 49, in a favorable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, why is he drawing attention to the now of it all? It's because the Messiah has come. There's nothing else to wait for. The Jews have been waiting and hoping and looking forward into the future of the day of the Lord, the day of the Messiah. But he has come. There's nothing else that needs to be done. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. The work is complete. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable day. Some of you walked into this room today not trusting in Jesus Christ, not knowing maybe even what he did on the cross, not being having your name written in the book of life for eternity, not turning from your sins and, and trusting that Jesus' work on the cross is the only way that you can escape the true penalty of those sins that we all deserve, separation from God in the real place called hell. If you walked in here today and that's you, now is the day. Now is the favorable time. You are not promised to make it home today. We cannot control whether we walk out into the parking lot and drop dead. We can't control that. We are not promised tomorrow. Now is the day. There is an urgency in all of our lives. If you make the... If you, if you want to think that right now you can just serve yourself and later on you're going to serve Christ maybe because you understand how that might work but you're, going to, but you're going to choose your sin right now. You may not get tomorrow. And there's people around all over this place and I'll be down front at the, after this message and I would love to talk with you more about how you can trust in Jesus this morning. But the truth is there's an urgency for all of us in this room. There's an urgency to the ministry of reconciliation because of that urgency in the life of every individual. And so the first thing we need to consider when it comes to looking at this model and comparing it to our lives is are we living urgency, urgently for the gospel? Is there any urgency in your life to share the truth of Jesus with those around you? He's telling the people in Corinth, now is not the time to drift to this interest and that interest. To just focus on the earthly hobbies and jobs and, and other things that are not part of the ministry. The ministry is now. Are we living urgently? Or are we just thinking, well, maybe if somehow someone forces me to talk to them, then I will. Although I would argue that if you're stuck in that spot, 
you'll probably find a way out of that conversation even if it smacks you in the face. Some way to, to get around it potentially. Even if someone was to walk up and say, how do I become a Christian? Like, uh, you wanna come to church Sunday? Which is fine, right? Inviting and bringing to church is a great thing. But we'll see in just a minute that we're supposed to share to fully engage in this ministry. The third aspect is the credibility. The credibility. And so, so what we see in these next verses is um, listenless. <laughs> there's, there's different ways you can package these next verses and, uh, and, and present to, for us to be able to understand. And so we're gonna uh, take the path that, uh, that I have laid out for us this morning. Um, but you can even see, I mean, for example, in terms of different ways you can look at this, if you look through verses four and five, as we read through it, you'll see that the word in is just occasionally put in there. Well, in the Greek, it's in there almost every time before all of these words. And so even the translation we have in front of us, if you have the ESV, there's, uh, there's been some, uh, uh, some help in the translation for us to understand what's going on here. And we're gonna follow a similar um, breakdown as what's in our Bibles here this morning. And so let's look at verse, verse three. We put no obstacle in another one's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. I want us to break down this these verses into, into three things that correspond to the credibility of this ministry as Paul describes it. First of all, the credible method. He says that, he, that they are faithfully enduring the struggles of ministry. And he lists out some of those struggles. And, and so, like I said at the beginning, this is some of the description versus prescription, right? All of us are gonna have a different life here on earth. Some of us are going to face more persecution than others. Some of that just has to do with where we were born or what time frame in history we've been born in. But what is true of every true follower of Christ is that we face struggles. And this current modern worldview and philosophy of, of, of seeking happiness above all and avoiding all of suffering and finding safe spaces for us and looking ourselves in the mirror and telling ourselves how wonderful we all are doesn't last very long. This, this current concept is completely devoid of God and scripture. If all of our faith and all of our trust is in ourselves and we're just gonna seek out our own happiness and joy as we define it, that is in no way living for Christ. James says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That as we follow Christ, our, our goal is not to avoid suffering. Our goal is to bring him glory and faithfully endure whatever suffering he brings our way because we know that it's going to make us stronger. 
Avoiding suffering in life, avoiding any difficulty in life makes you weak. And we see that in our culture right now. Even more so for us as believers, if we choose to avoid struggles and situations in which we must trust wholly on God. Not only are we not living for him, our faith is weaker. Are you struggling well? See, he, he lists this out as a, as a point of credibility. He's commending himself by how they have faithfully endured. I had the opportunity when I was in my, at my previous church in, uh, up in South Carolina. There's a, a university up there that has a lot of international students that, um, that go back and forth between America and, and where they're from. And I got the opportunity to talk with a, a man who had, had come from China and was heading back to China. And I asked him, you know, what's, you know, what's your plans? And, you know, how's this, you know, what, what does your future look like? And he was moving back to China to be a pastor. That's what, that was his desire. He wanted to go back. He wanted to engage in the Christian community and plant a church in China. I was fascinated by that. I had, I had never been able to talk with anybody else who had done that in that country or was going to. And so, I mean, I asked him, I was like, hey, how can we pray for you? And, and he, he told me, but he told me, you know what? W you know, we pray for y'all too. <laughs> he said, I said, oh yeah, what do you pray for? So we pray for y'all to trust in the Lord and to push away materialism and careerism and the things that distract and entangle so that you may have a stronger, deeper faith and be a light in the darkness. But it was the next thing that stood out to me even more. I said, well, how is this gonna work? You're gonna go back and you're gonna, you're gonna engage, you're gonna, you're gonna plant the church. And he told me, he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna do this. I don't, I have some connections and things, but he said, they're not really gonna trust me at first. They're not going to believe that I am who I say I am. They're, uh, they're gonna be very skeptical of my credibility as a true disciple of Christ. There might be other motives that I might have for trying to engage in their community. So they won't believe me until I go to prison for my faith. He fully expected that to be what he walked into when he went back. And the church viewed that as a sign of credibility because he would be willing to walk through the struggle and endure it faithfully. We are blessed in this country that that is not true of us right now. But we still struggle well for Christ if we're truly living for him missionally. The second part of this credibility, a credible manner, a credible manner in verse six, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. Now just... A quick aside, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but the, uh, for those of y'all who like to, to dig into the language and, and want a fun homework assignment this week, I would encourage you to look at this verse and look at the Greek and look at some commentaries and things because you can see that the ESV translates this as the Holy Spirit here, 
But that's one possible translation of the words, uh, of the Greek words. The, the, the words holy and spirit are there, but you could also in the context interpret this to mean a spirit of holiness, which I would argue is actually more in line with the other aspects of this verse contextually, right? And so the, trans, the translators are, are doing their best at, to, the, to the best of their ability, and there's people on both sides of the debate when it comes to these couple words here. But it may not be referring to the personhood of the Holy Spirit. It could be referring to a spirit of holiness, which would make there be <laughs> four out of the nine of the fruit of the Spirit lining up here, love, patience, kindness, and goodness, He's talking about a similar manner here, conducting ministry in a God-honoring way. That this should be characteristic of the lives of all of us. It was a characteristic of his ministry, and as the pattern for us, this should depict ours. Does it? Can this describe all of your interactions with people as you go through the week? Can this describe, is this true, of our lives as we're living for him. The third one, a credible means. A credible means. How is this ministry accomplished, right? How's the goal reach? How's the goal reached? In verse seven, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Preaching truth empowered by God, both the person communicating it and the truth itself. The Holy Spirit enables us to communicate that truth, but the truth itself has power as well. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And as a part of that, we, we're given weapons, we're given armor with the right hand and the left, visualizing not just fully um, armored up, but a offensive and a defensive capacity, but not for a war against flesh and blood. He says later in this letter in 2 Corinthians 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This aspect, this, this means of of accomplishing the ministry is one that's be very easy for us to just, just push to the side and say, well, that's just for people who, you know, who teach publicly, right? That's just for people who, who, who teach the word in some capacity like this right here. Don't do that. Don't give in to that temptation to, to push it to the side and say, well, I don't have to worry about teaching the truth speaking the truth. No, you are not fully engaging in the ministry of reconciliation if you are not using words to communicate the truth with people. Yes, our lives should look different and yes, they should notice differences about us. Absolutely. But we are only truly fully engaging in this ministry that all of us are a part of when we open our mouths and communicate the truth. Is that happening in all of our lives? Are we following this pattern? Some of us might be getting scared away, and what we're getting scared away by is the next part that he plays out, which is the paradox. There is a paradoxical response. And this ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, as you communicate the truth, reaps a paradoxical response that we must embrace. All of us. Let's take a look at the paradox at play here, starting in verse eight. 
through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. I'm going to take the time this morning to break those down individually. I'll do that in beyond the notes this week. But what you need to understand right now and see is that there is a paradox but in the responses. And we must embrace and expect that in our lives as well. The gospel is offensive. Telling someone that they are a sinner and they can't do anything about it in their own abilities. That they must turn from that, devote their lives and die to their sel- themselves and commit to follow Jesus. Otherwise spend eternity in a real place called hell. It's an offensive message. It's also the good news of Jesus for those who accept it. We should not expect to be loved in this world if we're going to love God and serve him well. They hated him, they'll hate us. And yes, that's gonna look different in all of our lives and where we live and what time we're born in. But the reality is, if we speak up and speak out about the truth, we will face both of these responses. And it's wrong of us to try and change ourselves or change the message to get a better response and not be true to the truth. To leave out parts of the gospel so that it's no longer the gospel is wrong and unfaithful. You see, when Jesus said in Matthew 7, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few, he was not saying this is what's going to happen if you don't learn how to do it better. If you, if you do ministry poorly or you're not good at talking, then only a few are gonna respond to you. But if you learn some really good methods and a couple really good questions, your hit rate's gonna be like 90%. It's not about that. We, we cannot gather a group of people together and say, let's cause a revival and then walk out and make it happen. Anybody who tells you you can do that is wrong. What we do is faithfully serve God in the ministry of reconciliation, devoting everything we have to it, yes, but we do not get to save anyone. We must expect pushback. We must expect to be hated. We must expect, according to the words of Jesus, the number to respond in faith is not many, but few. And changing that just to make ourselves feel better about the numbers of people is wrong. That's the paradox, but this paradox means that there will be some who accept it in faith and that results in us being a family of God together, which brings us to the last part, the unification. 
Verses 11 through 13, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted to us, or you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, in return, widen your hearts also. You see, if we are of one spirit, let us be of one heart. Regardless of where we're born, what we look like, who our family is, what our skill set is, regardless of all those individual characteristics, if we have repented of our sins, trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, have the Holy Spirit living and working inside of us, we are in one spirit. We are united. We must seek that unification. Philippians 2 says this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Listen, we're not all gonna be best friends. I'm gonna annoy some of y'all. It's okay, some of y'all annoy me. We're gonna be selfish We're gonna put our preferences above our convictions from time to time. Hopefully over time we do better (laughs) at those things. Because listen, Jesus elevated the importance of loving one another when he said, they will know you are my disciples based on how you love one another. Jesus didn't say, well, the world's just judging y'all for being hypocrites and they gotta get over that. No. He said, the world is watching. The world should be watching. And what they should see is love. And this unification within the body, regardless of our preferences and other things. And we must seek that. In fact, just a, a little, an extra little thing here. You know, this reminded me of our church covenant. Some of y'all might be familiar with that. We, um, uh, we read it at our member meetings. Here's what our church covenant says. By God's grace, we will trust in and obey the word of God, affirming it as the final and supreme authority for our lives. As we hear the word preached by our leaders, we will test biblically the truth of that instruction, finding them faithful with the gospel. We will voluntarily submit ourselves to the leaders Christ has given our church, recognizing that they must give an account. Essentially what Paul is asking of the church in Corinth laying out his resume, laying out his, um, his credibility of the, of the ministry, describing what all has transpired and, what, and why he should be trusted. And he says, now open up your hearts also. We must strive for unity within this body once we identify that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Flawed, messed up, no such thing as normal, brothers and sisters in Christ, but unified in love and the spirit. The way we most fully live out, living missionally as ambassadors for Christ means suffering well, means behaving well, means speaking the truth when we have the opportunities and pursuing it, but also loving well. and first and foremost within the body of Christ. I wanna close by looking back at verse three. 
Paul says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. As I said before, we don't get to save anybody. It's not our job. It's not what we're asked to do. It's not anything we have the skill for, the ability to do. We are called to live faithfully and embrace the fact that we are in this ministry of reconciliation if we are in Christ. It's why we're still here. God could have just as easily spoken to everyone individually and told them the truth, and when you respond in faith, you're gone. We're still here for a reason. And it's not to pursue happiness. It's to pursue him. And how we carry ourselves and how we live out this ministry may result in an obstacle or not. Let us seek to not put an obstacle before anyone, but seek to live in line with this pattern of Paul's ministry and call it our own. Not for our glory, but for his. <laughs>